questions, a lot of confusion. And with it, I don't know about any of you, maybe just raise your hand. Does it feel a little unsettling sometimes? Yeah, it does. If, If we stop and we think, what's actually going on in the world, it feels a little unsettling. And it can bring some anxiety and anxiousness. Many of you know my family's in the process of a transition. We were this year transitioning to move across the world to work with the missions organization we're with um, to, to help bring the gospel to uh, people throughout Australia and Asia, targeting to do that in Melbourne, Australia. And there's a lot of unknown ahead of us. There's a lot of uncertainty ahead of us. And there are many days where we feel like, Lord, can this actually happen? Is this possible? How is this going to happen? When we look at our task list, our to-do list of things. And then life continues to happen. You know, there are things that you expect and plan, and then there are lots of things that come up unexpectedly. Well, for me, one of the unexpected things that has come up recently is my mom was actually just diagnosed with cancer within the last month, an advanced stage of endometrial cancer. She had a full hysterectomy less than a month ago. So they live in Colorado, so as our family was processing this, you know, I thought, hey, I have an opportunity right now. I should go back and visit them. I should go spend some time. So this last week, I was in Colorado visiting them and spending time with them, and my goal was just to encourage them and bless them and love on them. And our relationship is not very close. We haven't had a good, close relationship over the years. Um, You know, and going into that trip, I just really sought the Lord. Lord, what do you want this time to look like? If I'm, if I'm going to spend time away from my family and all of the things that we have going on, what would make this the best use of our time? And I felt the lick the Lord was just putting on my heart. Love them. Love them. You know, and interestingly, in our, in our remembrance of the law this morning, as Lee led us into the liturgy, we recited together the greatest commandments, the two greatest commandments right? So Jesus is confronted on, Lord, what are the two greatest commandments? And he responds, or or a Pharisee comes and asks him, Lord, what's the greatest commandment? And he responds with, love God, the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. And that was on my heart to think, what would it look like to love my family well? My family who doesn't know the Lord, who is distant from the Lord. How can I love them well and bless them well and serve them well? And so as I thought about that, I felt like the Lord was really putting in my heart, love them with the gospel. Don't just love them in action. I wanted to go and serve them and help with meals and projects around their house. But I felt like the Lord was saying, it is just as important to love them with your words. And may your words be my words. And so I prayed and and Leanne prayed and we had others joining us in prayer. God, would you open the door for some great spiritual conversation? And God answered. He said yes. And so we had some incredible spiritual conversation together. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read to you questions that came up. We had conversation over several hours during the time I was there. So my parents are questioning these things. And I don't know how many of you can relate to some of these questions. Here are questions that are coming up. These are questions I have and I've asked many times in the past. Number one, why would a loving God cause or allow things like disease and sickness, violence and murder, natural disasters, oppression and injustice, hatred, greed, jealousy. Why would a loving God cause or allow these things? 
Why is there so much suffering and pain in the world? What do I need to do to earn God's favor and help? Why would Christians experience any more hardship and suffering than non-Christians? And the context of that is, I was trying to help them realize that a Christian is not exempt from pain and suffering. But in actuality, and we're going to get into this in a minute, those who follow Christ should expect more suffering. If you're following Christ, suffering is part of it. And we'll get into more of why that is. Another question is, what is God doing in these tragedies and in these places of suffering? This came out of, okay, if God's in them, what is he actually doing in them? Why is the church and Christians full of hypocrisy, greed, corruption, judgment, etc.? Why won't God just fix it all or stop all the problems and pain? Why won't God make more people know him if his desire is for all people to know him? Why won't he save more people? Why aren't my good deeds or generosity or works enough to get God to help me? And this one very specifically and personally in the context of my mom was suffering. She was asking, when, if, if and when will this hardship end? And I think that we could fill in that, a blank with that. When will this blank end? How many of you have asked some of these kind of questions in your own life before? I think that it's appropriate for us to ask these questions, to wonder, God, what are you doing? Why is this happening? And early on in, in my Christian faith, I had a lot of these questions. When I had come to know Christ— as a freshman at the University of Colorado, a lot of these questions were stirring in my heart. Okay, if God, if you're real, and if your word is true, what is the deal with all of this stuff? Why? And a, a mentor friend encouraged me not to stop asking the question of why, but to start asking the question more of, what is God doing in the midst of these things? What is he doing? We've been in this sermon series about the resurrection of Christ. The Christ is alive. He reigns supreme over all of heaven and earth. Is he really in control of it all? And if so, where is he working? How is he working? And so this morning we're going to get into what I think is one of the biggest aspects of the Christian life that is often overlooked. And I think it's very personal for our church and real for our church. And so we're going to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 3. And this will be our scripture that we're going to spend our time on this morning. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we look to you, our gracious God, our great God, our good God who loves us, and we pray, Father, that you would lead us into truth. Lord, that your grace 
would cover our lives and that we would live out of that and in light of that. And this morning we pray, Father, that your word would guide and direct and lead us by your spirit in us to align with the life you want us to live, that we would live out of your grace to be disciples who make disciples, to be your followers who help others follow you. So God, lead us this morning and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this, this passage in 2 Timothy 2 uh, is, is written to a group of people in an ancient city called Ephesus. Specifically, it was written to the pastor of the church, Timothy. Uh, I, I know the Fortson's had a chance to go to the ancient city of Ephesus a number of years ago. I had a chance to go to Ephesus a number of years ago. It is a, a vibrant, thriving heap of rocks. There's nothing there anymore. It's just ruins. It's a city of ruins. Uh, the closest town nearby is a, is a town called Selchuk. And I actually, I looked up this week, how many churches? What, what, is, the, what is the state of the church in Selchuk, Turkey, uh, on, the, on the west coast of Turkey? And what I was able to find online, now there's stuff underground, metaphorically underground, that we don't know about. But um, there are two churches in Selchuk, Turkey. Two churches. And it looks like uh, very few people are part of that. They're meeting in homes. Now again, we don't know what's happening that's not online, right? But I do know that Turkey is one of the least reached parts of the world now with the gospel. And, and the ancient city of Ephesus was, the, was one of the top prominent cities of the Roman Empire in Jesus' life and in the few centuries after. And the church of Ephesus became the center of sending the gospel around the world for a hundred years. It was a vibrant, thriving city with a vibrant, thriving church fruitfully working the gospel in that community and out from it. And, and Timothy, this disciple of Paul, was raised up and trained to be a pastor and elder, and, and, and he had been tasked with leading the church in Ephesus and quickly ran into a lot of problems. If you read the, the letters of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you'll, you'll see, oh, these are actually letters of encouragement to a struggling church and a struggling pastor. These are letters to a community of people who are really wrestling with some big issues, cultural issues. These are letters written to a pastor who's insecure and trying to figure out, how do I lead these people well? And, and in the midst of it all, Paul writes this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And we're going to get into that some more here. But don't lose sight of the gospel. Don't lose sight of the work God is doing in our midst and among you and through you. Don't lose sight of Jesus and his grace. And, and historically, there is no remnant of that church that currently exists in that part of the world. It's, it's dead. The church is mostly dead in that part of the world. Would you say that the Ephesian church, the church of Ephesus, was a failure? If it doesn't currently exist, was it a failure? No, and some of us are like, mm, I don't know. Should I say no? Should I say yes? If the church doesn't still exist, was it a failure? And I would argue no. 
what happened and what God did in those people and in that place and time continues to reverberate throughout history all over the world. That we have these pieces of Scripture, God's Word, that guide us because of what He was doing in that place and time among those people. And there's more written about the church in Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament. It was amazing and beautiful. And even though it doesn't currently exist, the fruit of it has blessed the entire world. Why? How? And I think the key, the secret, is in these three verses that we're focusing on. Now, if we jump ahead culturally to our current day and age, true or false, the church in the West, in America, is on an increase, growing, thriving, exploding, true or false? False, all right, so we're on the same page. Uh, In fact, the church is, is believed to be dying in the United States, which is tragic. Christianity is on a decline. The institutionalized church, for good or bad, is dying. Why is that? How is that? A thousand years from now, those who in other parts of the world, will they look back and see us similar to Ephesus? I don't know. I hope not. We live in a culture where most pe- more people are moving away from Jesus than moving to Jesus. We live in a culture, uh, this, there's, a, there's a research group called Barna, Barna Research. It's one of the leading research organizations in the United States, and they specifically focus on doing research about the movement of Christianity and the gospel and the church and, and how, how that's all shaping and taking place in our world. So Barna Research has a term that they've used, we live in a current digital Babylon. Basically meaning that digitally, what we are experiencing is pulling away, us away from God, much like the Babylonian Empire of ancient times was driving people away from God because of what they were imposing and bringing. And there was just a growing wave of godlessness. And they say, we live in a current age that is of digital Babylon, where Greg Kinnaman, the the president of Barna, he says, today's climate is more challenged with issues of access, alienation, and authority than ever before in our culture. And here's what he means by that. We have more access to information and things than ever before. And while on some hands, that's great. You know, we can access information about medical needs and issues. You know, how many of you get on WebMD and you're like, I'm going to self-diagnose whatever this issue is that I'm dealing with, and you think you can come up with a solution, right? (laughs) Yeah, a lot of us have been in that place, right? So there's beautiful things to that. Um, How many of you get on and you you say, I I need help making a recipe or how to do something, how to fix something, how to build something? There's a ton of information that's really helpful and beneficial, right? How many of you have YouTubed how to do something in the last couple of weeks? All the time, yeah. YouTube is the new modern-day university, So there's a lot of information out there. The access to information is unprecedented. Simultaneously, there's a shadow of that and a dark side of that. And it's not a surprise to any of us that the access to information also is leading us astray, particularly in terms of following God. 
And as the father of a rising teenage daughter, I've been more and more in tune with how is our digital world and social media affecting our children and our teenagers? How is the impact of social media in our digital age impacting our society? And it's astonishing at how much depression, anxiety, peer struggles exist today that there are more teenage girls that identify with being depressed and anxious than not. More teenage kids are struggling with anxiety and depression than those who are not today. And it's being linked to the digital world that we live in because we're constantly comparing. We're constantly looking at one another. We're constantly seeing, hey, what's so-and-so doing, and how is so-and-so doing? And, and there are organizations like Dove, right? Dove skincare products and makeup and stuff. They actually are taking on a campaign. Have any of you seen the campaign that Dove is doing right now? Dove has this campaign where they're actually trying to rebrand what beauty should be defined as. Because what they're realizing is it's destroying our children. It's destroying this generation of young people to believe a lie that beauty is something completely different than what God actually designed and intended it to be. And so what's happening is our access to information is actually leading us astray just as much, if not more so, than it's helping us thrive as a culture and a people. So access is one of the challenges. Our access to digital information is also bringing increased alienation and isolation and and the, the perception of being independent is actually leading people into isolation and depression and anxiety, which then propels people to medicate with whatever. Media, drugs, sex, alcohol, whatever it is. Medicating is more prevalent than ever before because people are being alienated. Even though we're more connected, we're more alienated. Simultaneously, it's bringing a challenge and a struggle with authority. Now, I personally often question, what does it look like for me as a Christian to submit to authority in my life, in our day and age, where a lot of the authority that's been placed before us is very questionable, amen? How many of us have been like, I don't know if I can follow that authority? I don't know if I agree with that authority. I don't know if that authority should be an authority. Right? And so we are putting people in authority, and God, as he's sovereignly moving, is allowing these figures of authority to be put in place. And culturally, it's leading us to question and wrestle with authority, maybe more than ever before. We see it in our city, the questioning of authority that our city has put in place, right? So this, this term of cop city that's been put in on the new public safety property down south of here is a huge battle right now questioning authority, right? We're not going to get into the political aspects of that, but at core, it's people who have differing values questioning what should authority look like. We see it on a national scale. We see it on a local scale. We see it on a personal scale. So, any, so all this is going on. This is all painting a picture of what we're wrestling with. None of us are exempt from it. We're all wrestling with this. And so we, we look historically, this is, these are not issues that are new. 
culturally, here's what's going on, but what we have to do is shift away from that and think, okay, personally, what's going on in my life? And what is Jesus calling me into in the midst of all this stuff? I think 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, calls us to what we're focusing on for our time. We are called to live as disciples who make disciples. We are called to follow Jesus in the midst of all this and live in such a way that others are compelled to know the one who is of true good authority, the one who brings us away from alienation to belonging, the one who gives us access not to what the world says is good and true and right, but the creator of the universe says is good and true and right. And so I pray now that we will be able to look at this passage through a lens of a God who says, I'm going to work through all the boundaries and barriers and hindrances that are being put up in your life to bring you to a place where you will live in light of my good news. We are called to a life of discipleship. And so in 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 3, we're going to look at five traits of a disciple maker. Five traits of a disciple who will make disciples. And this is building off of where we've been the last few weeks, right? So I want to acknowledge that last week, Josh Irby spoke about what it looks like to be a witness from Acts 1. Before that, Pastor David took a look at what does it look like to, look, to follow Jesus from the end of John. When Jesus says, you follow me, you be my witnesses, you be my disciples. We're building off of, okay, what does it actually look like and mean to be a disciple of Christ who makes disciples? To follow Jesus in such a way that others are compelled to follow Jesus. And I think this is especially pertinent to our church as we are questioning and wrestling with and struggling with our very existence. Whether our church exists a year from now or a hundred years from now, or if our church has a similar fate to the church in Ephesus, what is the issue at stake that God wants us to be wrestling with? That we would not lose sight of him and we would continue to follow him as disciples who make disciples. So turn with me again to 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. So here, Paul tells his, his child in the faith, Timothy, as a leader in the church, as an influencer, as someone who's helping to shape the lives of others, he says, of utmost importance, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Everything else is secondary. The grace that is in Christ Jesus is what strengthens us. Not your own capabilities, not your own giftings, not your own strengths, not your own desires, not your own values, not your own ambitions, not your own pursuits, whatever it is, not your own vocational competence. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor from God. The God, our Father, who looks at us and sees us in all of our imperfections, all of our flaws, every thought and intent of our mind and our heart that is completely distant from him, our Father looks at us and he sees Jesus when we have received him and he says, my grace is sufficient, my power is made perfect in your weakness, I'm giving you undeserved favor. There's nothing that you've done to deserve this, it's all because of what Jesus has done. Be strengthened in that. Don't lose sight of that. Don't forget that. Remember, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, 
Paul writes to another church in Philippi, Philippians 3, 7 through 8. He says this. Speaking of himself, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here we have this letter to another church where a leader in the church is saying, hey, I had a lot going for me. I was an accomplished professional. In my vocation, I was the top notch. The context of this passage in Philippians 3 is is Paul taking a moment to say, hey, if we want to boast for a minute, let, let me tell you a little bit about my journey. I have been completely competent, sufficient, effective, capable. And he says, but you know what? None of that matters. Whatever gain I had, whatever was going for me professionally, vocationally, relationally, I count it as a loss compared to what? Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ for the sake of Christ. That he's recognizing, he's seeing in his own life that there is nothing more important. There's nothing greater that God calls us to but to know him, to know him to love him, to follow him, to become like him, and everything else is secondary or tertiary or keep going. Everything is at loss compared to knowing Christ. In fact, he says, for his sake, I have suffered. I have endured hardship. I have endured suffering and persecution and destruction, and there's been a lot of pain I have endured because I believe this is what's the most important thing, and I will gladly endure it all the more for his sake. And I count all this as rubbish, trash, garbage, that I may gain Christ. When I was a kid, there's a man named Alex Lowe who was a world-renowned mountaineer rock climber. And some of you who know me, I use a lot of illustrations about the outdoors. I love the outdoors. And people who know me know I love hiking and exploring and And there was this man named Alex Lowe who was uh, one of the leading world-renowned climbers and mountaineers. He climbed, he was the first one to ascend peaks all over the world and considered one of the greatest athletes uh, in the 90s and early 2000s. And as a young kid growing up in the mountains of Colorado, he was my inspiration. And I truly idolized him in a lot of ways. And I thought, I want to know this guy. I want to know this guy. And I want to become like him. And I read everything I could about him, and I followed him. And in, in the early 2000s, he and a group of people were trying to climb, the, be the first ones to climb a, a mountain in the Himalayas. And an avalanche was triggered, and it swept them all up, and Alex Lowe was killed. And it rocked me. It devastated me. National Geographic, if you're Disney+, Plus, you can look up, a, there's a documentary about him and his life. And I remember thinking, I, w- I wanted to know this guy, Alex because I was so compelled with his life. I wanted to become like this guy, Alex. And I don't know about you, is there someone in your life you look at and you think, maybe it's someone in your profession, or maybe it's someone that's an influencer or another leader, and you think, I would love to know this person. I would love to become like this person. I'd love to follow this person. 
I think as kids, we, we tend to have more of those, and as we grow older, we lose sight of that, and we get so busy and caught up in our stuff, but, but we still can look at people that we admire in our culture, and we think, I would love to know that person and meet that person. And I, I think back to that time in my life, and I think, what was the longing of my heart in that time? Why did I want to know and become like that person so much? It was because there was something about them that compelled me to greatness. And I look at that and I think, there's so much within that that is what Jesus is calling us to. That Jesus is calling us to know him personally, to follow him, to become like him, to enjoy him, to delight in him. Because he is so good, because he is so worth it. A desire to not just know about them, but to know them personally. There's a big difference between knowing about someone that you admire and respect and then being able to call them up on the phone and say, hey, can we come hang out together? And them saying yes. Jesus is inviting us to know him. The surpassing worth of knowing him overshadows everything else. So this is the first trait of a disciple who makes disciples. That we would be a people who live with a passion to know, love, and become like Jesus. That we would be a people who live with a passion to know, love, and become like Jesus. The first trait of a disciple who makes disciples. But in this Second Timothy passage, it goes on. It says, not only do I want you to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, but here's, here's the thing. What you have heard from me, Paul writes to Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to others. And that, that phrase, what you have heard from me, is where our second trait of a disciple-maker comes in. What was it that Paul was referring to? Was it his own sound advice and wisdom? Was it his own perspective on things? No. Paul was continually bringing those who were following Jesus back to God's word, back to the truth, back to the source. What you have heard I think it's resonated in Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16 says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We're going to go back to the smartphone. All right? In 2019, pre-pandemic, this is uh, an article that Asurion, in partnership with a number of other organizations, did a research, a study on. And they, they identified that pre-pandemic in 2019, based on their research, the average American checked their phone 96 times a day. 96 times a day, pre-pandemic. 96 times a day was based on their research. Fast forward to today, this is as of last month, last month, this is really recent data, what would you guess is the average number of times they've identified people check their phone every day? Throw, throw out some numbers, I'm curious. This would be like Price is Right for a moment here. How many? 236. Keep going up. 4,000 times a day. That would be astonishing. One dollar. 
we, uh, we, we got a big range here. We got 200 to 1,000. All right, here's what, they've, here's what they've identified. The average American, based on their research, checks their phone once every 2 minutes and 43 seconds, which comes out to an average of 352 times a day. That's the average American picks it up and looks at it. Let the word of your cell phone dwell in you richly. Let the word of ESPN or whatever news media or your school outlet or whatever, let that dwell in you richly. That's what the world's telling us. 352 times a day, once every two minutes and 43 seconds, the average American is picking up their phone to look at it for something. And some households may gravitate more towards a thousand times a day. Some households may gravitate towards one dollar a day. The point is this. What are we allowing to dwell in our hearts? What is the word that is often penetrating our hearts, that is shaping our thinking, that is shaping our values, that is shaping our convictions, that is shaking, shaping the way we relate to our friends and our neighbors, our coworkers, our children? Whose word is dominant in your life? Jesus says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So that Paul saying to Timothy, what you have heard from me, you could pass on. I love passing on basketball stats from the playoffs right now to people. Did you see what the Lakers did the other night? It's all rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So here's the second trait. That we would be disciples who make disciples by knowing and living from the scriptures, from God's word. That God's word would be the thing that is dictating and determining our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes. The intentions of my heart. God knows them. What is shaping them? May the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you and I would be people who are following Jesus, allowing the scriptures to dwell in us richly, that we would live out of them, that when we interact with our neighbors and our friends, our children, whoever, it would be God's word that is driving the way we relate and interact and the actions we take and what we do in our business place, in our workplace, and the decisions we make to lead other people and influence other people. May we be a people who know and live from the scriptures. So Paul keeps going. He says, not only what, what you've heard from me, he says, in the presence of many witnesses, in trust to others, in the presence of many witnesses, and we're going to split this off in two directions here briefly for a moment. The first direction, I think we can look at Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. And so when Paul says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, part of that is in the community of believers, among those who know Jesus and are following Jesus. What you've heard from me in this setting, in this environment, among biblical community, continue to invest in that, continue to be immersed in that, continue to engage in that. It's always been a value of our church 
to have village groups and community and, and small groups be a vibrant part. And in different seasons, at different times, it's looked different. When Leanne and I moved here and we joined Village Church, right away we said, hey, we want to be part of a, of a, a village group, a small group. The church we had come from in our previous city, we had a mixed experience with some of that. We had some beautiful things that we experienced, and we had some hard things we experienced. But we knew it was of utmost importance to be in, in community. So we joined a, a community group, a village group. And a couple months into that village group, those who were leading it decided it was time for them to step back and step away. And, and the group kind of looked around, and they said, hey, will someone else lead this and take this on? And so my wife and I looked around, who's going to lead this and take this on? We said, well, we'll do it. We'll take it on. And it was a struggle initially. It was a challenge. That group that had existed mostly dissolved. dissolved. And we realized, hey, if we want community, we're going to have to be intentional to rebuild something with it. This was 10 years ago. And so we, we were devoted and committed to bringing others into it with us. We said, hey, this is a value to us. We know it's a need for us. We want to help build community. And we prayed, God, would you build community? God, would you grow us in community? Would you strengthen us in community? Would you allow our kids to grow up in community here? And God answered those prayers. And this is to his work and his glory. This is not to us. But God allowed us to see a group of just a few people grow to over 40 people within a few years. And we were able to spin off another group. And it was a beautiful journey for about seven years. And then COVID hit, and it shut it all down, and we were so discouraged. But I think that illustrated that there are ebbs and flows, there are highs and lows. The value in this is that in Hebrews 10, let us consider, let us be intentional about, let us pursue how to engage in community, that we would stir up one another, that we would prompt and provoke one another to love and good deeds, that we'd be part of this together with one another. And this is the third trait of a disciple maker, that we would be disciples who make disciples by intentionally pursuing biblical community, not just attending on Sunday morning. This is important. And many of you are very much involved and engaged in that. And there are seasons of life, hear me say, there are seasons of life where it's hard. And I think you can say, hey, we need to step back for a season. But let that be the exception and not the norm. That we would be a people who pursue biblical community together. The other branch of this, when Paul says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, is also recognizing that there are those who have been part of this who don't know Jesus yet. So biblical Christian community is one side, but another side is being immersed and engaged with those who don't know Jesus. They are witnesses to what's happening. They are witnesses to the truth of God that has been going on. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, 1 Thessalonians 2.8, another church, Paul says this, because we loved you so much, and this is the, the New International Version I'm going to read. I, I love how the New International Version highlights this. This is in the ESV. The ESV says, so being affectionately desirous of you, the NIV words it like this. It says, because we loved you so much, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, our own selves, because you've become so very dear to us. 
we were delighted to share not only the gospel, but our own lives. And I think this is what it means to live among many witnesses, that we would be a people following Christ to say, hey, it's not enough that I'm only engaged in my Christian community. That's good. But there's something so much more God is calling us and inviting us to, that he's saying, I want you to live among those who don't know me and present the gospel, pass on the gospel, share the gospel, advance the gospel among those who don't know me. Jesus referred to them as the lost. He said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Those who are lost, those who are wandering, those who are allowing the world to dictate and determine what they should do and it's pulling them away from me. I want you to be immersed among them, those who don't know me, so that they would see you and be drawn to me as a result. And this is the fourth trait of a disciple who makes disciples, that we would live among those who don't know Jesus and invest in those relationships, that we'd be intentional about it. I'm so challenged by some friends of mine who moved to a new city and they recognized, hey, we want to have an impact in our neighborhood because they, they recognized most of their neighbors didn't know Jesus. Most of their neighbors were so busy pursuing the things that they were after in their workplaces and in their hobbies and in their interests. Everyone had a boat and they'd go out on the boat for the weekends and, and just live in the high life. And they were so challenged because there was so much despair and frustration in their neighborhood. And there were broken marriages. Marriages were falling apart. And they said, what is the hope? The hope isn't in getting on your boat and going out for the weekend. The hope is in knowing the God of the universe who has made you to live in relationship with him. And so our friends have made a commitment to say, hey, we are going to do whatever it takes to love and serve and bless and invest in our neighbors, the people we live among, the people we interact with. And they've inspired us and compelled us to try to live in a similar way. Where we put a bonfire in our front yard and we created it to be a space where our neighbors could come and hang out. We try to engage. My wife does such a better job at this than I do. We've created a, an environment where our neighbors reach out to each other when they have needs for something. And they know that we are Christians. We follow Christ and we are praying for them and we walk our neighborhood and we pray for them and we try to engage in conversations with them. And, and we pray and we long that not only would we just be a presence of Christ in the neighborhood, but that we would proclaim Christ in our neighborhood. That they would come to know the one who we know and not just know about him. And so would you strive to be a disciple who lives in, among those who don't know Jesus. And this is our fifth trait. <clears throat> Timothy goes into this, or excuse me, Paul goes into this with Timothy. He says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men and women who will be able, capable, qualified to what? To teach others. And share in suffering. Suffering's going to come if you do this. Share in suffering with me in this. Don't resist it or reject it or try to make your life comfortable and convenient. That is our temptation. Our temptation is to eradicate suffering and get rid of suffering, to pursue convenience and comfort. And God says to us, share in suffering. 
embrace suffering, endure suffering, persevere in suffering, because if you are going to follow me, suffering is part of it. Hardship is part of it, whether it's disease or, as we're experiencing in our middle school environment right now, that if you claim to follow Christ and make decisions based on values of Christ, there will be forms of persecution. It happens at a juvenile middle school level and it happens at a great level, at an adult level. That those will look at us and say, why are you pursuing that? That is not going to bring convenience and comfort. And we have the opportunity as Christians to say, because the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus is so much better. I've had the privilege of coming alongside two Georgia Tech seniors over the last year or so and walking with them, and both of these guys are engaged. I'm going to tell you a short story about Ben and Joe. Ben is graduating here in a week with a degree in mechanical engineering, and he's going to go work for an engineering consulting firm here in Atlanta to help design aeronautical stuff. I don't even know the extent of what he's doing. I'm not even going to try to think about it. He's a brilliant guy. He's engaged. He's about to be married this fall. He and I have been meeting together every week almost and talking about, hey, what does it look like to take what you have gained and heard and grown in and learned and pass it on and entrust it to others? And Joe, who's one of Ben's best friends, Joe and I meet and we do the same thing and we talk about, Joe, what does it look like? Joe's going to go to work for um, Delta here this fall, this summer. He's got a degree in public policy, and, and Joe is entering into one of the largest workplace settings in our city, and he's a little intimidated, and he's about to get married this fall as well. And Joe and I have been walking through and talking through, what does it look like, Joe, to take what you have grown in and learned and gained in your faith and pass it on so that those in your workplace would come to realize the same hope and faith that you have? What does it look like as these men are moving into new neighborhoods and starting new life and marriage to lead out of their faith so that what they have gained would not stop with them, but would continue? And this is what Jesus' heart and his great commission to us is. When Jesus told his disciples at the end of his time, he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is in Matthew 28. Therefore, go, make disciples. As you're going through life, wherever I'm sending you, whatever workplace you're in, whatever neighborhood you're in, make disciples who will make disciples. Entrust to others who will be capable to teach others as well. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded to you. And at the end of Matthew 28, Jesus says, and I'm with you. I'm with you. You're not doing this alone, and in fact, if you try, it's not going to work. I'm with you. Do it out of my strength and my grace and my power that's at work in you. I'm with you. And so Ben and Joe have developed a plan where they're thinking intentionally now, what could it look like to pass on and reproduce and multiply my life into others? And they're starting to intentionally think, how can I network with people in my workplace? How can I connect with people in my neighborhood so that I could intentionally and purposefully and by God's grace, fruitfully reproduce my life spiritually into others? And this is the fifth trait of a disciple who makes disciples. That they seek to advance the gospel generationally through spiritual generations. 
There's over 8 billion people in the world today. When these words were written, it's believed that there were less than 500 million. How does over 2,000 years a population explode from 500 million to 8 billion? It happens through reproduction, multiplication, not addition. The answer is not in how can I add more people to a Facebook group? Or how can I add more people to this event? The answer that Jesus is giving us is what he says to Timothy. He says, what you've heard from me, entrust to others, personally, that they would then grow with capability and competence to entrust it to others, and that that would multiply. That if one person said, I'm going to invest in these two people, and those people started following Christ, that that would multiply. And that those two people would invest then in four people, and then in eight people, and then in 16 people. And we can keep multiplying that, and that is how the church grows. That is how the gospel moves. That is what God's plan and his design is. That we would be people who follow him with a purpose and a mission and an intentionality to invest in future generations. That spiritual generations would come to know him and follow him. So as we close, here's my question. No matter what happens with this church, no matter what happens wherever you may be going in a few months, whether you're here or in another city, will you join Jesus on mission to know him, follow him, become like him? Will you join Jesus by knowing and living from the scriptures? Will you join Jesus by immersing yourself in biblical community? Will you join Jesus by living among those who don't know him? And will you join Jesus by advancing his gospel with him among generations that others would come to know him? Not because of duty or obligation, but because of a desire to see our friends and our family know the same Savior of the world who we know. Because of Christ's love and kindness and forgiveness and mercy and grace. Because of what Jesus has done for us so that we could be with him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we, we long and desire to be a people who follow you, who are joined with you. And sometimes it is so hard. It is so hard when competing values hit us. And Lord, I confess that there are competing values that hit me, and I'm tempted to walk away from these truths. But Lord, may we be a people who embrace what it means to be your followers, your people, your disciples, who would help others become the same. And so, Father, as we go out today, would you send us as a people on fire and on purpose to make you known among those around us, that we would be disciples who make disciples for the rest of our lives. And may that be our legacy. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, now's a time in our service when we get to respond to God by offering to him. And most of us prefer to give online, and so would you take a moment to just pause and pray and seek the Lord? How would he want you to respond to this message which of these traits might he be putting on your heart to really enter in with him more? 
And how might you respond by giving and contributing back to what he's doing among us in this church?